Well, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to uh, Jesus' famous teaching, Take Up Your Cross and Follow Me. And previous to this, Jesus had miraculously fed thousands of people, an event hearkening back to Moses and the people of God in the wilderness when God fed Israel miraculously with manna, quail, and, and water from the rock. The feeding of the 5,000 led to Peter's confession that we looked at last week, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised offspring of Eve, the promised son of David, and the greater Elisha. Jesus, in turn, added very important details to Peter's confession. The Christ is also the son who must die for the sins of his people. After all, the promise to Eve was that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent would bruise his heel. As we saw last week, only a human can atone for another human. So even as Isaac, the miraculously born son of Abraham, was offered by his father as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah, he was insufficient to atone. That's Genesis 22. Likewise, even as Moses ascended to God's presence on top of Mount Sinai to offer himself also as an atoning sacrifice for the people of God that was after the golden calf uh, incident, well, he too was insufficient. Well, so also we saw last week that Jesus taught that he, he alone is sufficient to atone for the sins of his people. Well, with all of that context, all of that background in mind, let's pick it up with chapter 9, beginning with verse 23. And he, Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Father, we ask that this word in your Son would penetrate deep within our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. May we take up our cross daily and follow him, just as he calls us to do. We ask all of this in his name, through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, previous to this moment, Jesus had stepped back from the crowds. This is last week. He had stepped back from the crowds and spent time in prayer and then in conversation with his disciples. But here in verse 23, Jesus says to the crowds, who apparently have come back around, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Phrases like this one are, are so familiar to us uh, that they have very little shock value, even as they were very shocking to his disciples. And really, why would they be? I mean, the, the reality is that crucifixion is not part of our culture. I mean, thank God we don't, you know, go to the edge of the city limits to watch people be nailed to crosses and die over the course of days uh, for capital offenses. So, you know, what, what tends to happen is that we read verses like this one, 
and this is repeated throughout the Gospels, as, as merely an admonition to a self-disciplined life in light of Jesus. And of course, the Christian life is a life of self-discipline. That's what makes it so terribly difficult for us living in these times. But that's not exactly what Jesus had in mind. Now, to add context to Jesus' statement, public shame and cruelty, brutality, were central to why the Romans crucified people. And so to die by crucifixion was not merely a brutal way to die, though it certainly was. It was deeply shameful, deeply shameful to die this way. For example, there was a, uh, a rudimentary drawing uh, with an inscription found in the palace of Septimius Severus, who ruled around, I don't know, 193 to the early 200s or so, that was apparently made by a pagan youth, uh, making fun of another student in, in palaces they often, uh, in, in particular ruling palaces, they would have educated the elites there sometimes. So it's a pagan youth making fun of another student who was a Christian, and the picture is of Jesus on the cross with the head of a donkey instead of a head of a man with a person next to the cross worshiping Jesus. And the inscription reads, Aleximenos worships his God. So in other words, and to put it in, I guess we could say more church appropriate terms, Christians worship a God who's no better than a crucified donkey. That's what's in view. Now, of course, early Christians knew how the wider Greek-speaking world thought of them. They knew just how scandalous crucifixion was. To the Jews, it was no different. Uh, crucifixion was linked to Deuteronomy 21, where in the law, a man put to death and hung on a tree, and there were many ways to do this, including crucifixion in the Old Testament, that, men, that a man was considered cursed by God if he was put to death or after his, his killing put on a tree in such a way. Now, example of this is in Joshua 10, where Joshua does this very thing to five powerful Canaanite kings who opposed Israel and Israel's conquest of the Promised Land. This is uh, the famous battle where the sun and moon stood still, if you remember that story. So when the battle turned against the kings and their combined armies, the kings, they fled, as kings tend to do, and they went and hid in a cave. And Joshua finds them and covers the entrance to the cave with rocks, hemming them in until the battles were totally uh, finished up or mopped up. And afterwards, he comes back and he brings them out. He gets the leaders of Israel to put their feet on these kings' necks, which is a symbol, really, of how Yahweh has crushed the head of the serpents of Canaan, through his people, and then he kills them, and he hangs them on trees till nightfall, according to the law. After that, he throws their bodies uh, into the same cave where they had hidden, and he covers it back up. So to the Jewish mind, the claim that Jesus was the Christ of Israel, who died on a cross on a tree, was akin to saying these wicked kings crucified by Joshua thrown into caves were actually good men. So when Jesus specified that his death would be by way of crucifixion, he was indicating something crazy. That the unblemished Son of God would atone for his people 
by being cursed by God. This is exactly, as you well know, what Isaiah 53 pictures with the suffering servant. And this is perfectly illustrated at the end of the Gospels when given the choice by Pilate. The crowds choose the murdering revolutionary Barabbas, which is not his real name. That's the name he took to himself. It's son of the father, Bar Abbas. He's saying, I'm the true son of the father who actually deserved to be crucified and cursed by God. Well, they chose to release him over the true son of the father, Jesus the Christ, and, and called instead for Jesus to be cursed by God and hung on a tree. Again, according to the law, Jesus was taken down at nightfall, and like the five Canaanite kings, he was put into a cave, and the entrance was covered by a stone. The leadership of Israel unknowingly, very much in accordance with the Day of Atonement, had chosen the unblemished son of the herd, the son of Israel, the son of God, to atone for the sins of his people. Now, here in our passage... Jesus says his disciples will take up their cross daily and follow him. In short, among other things, we will be willing to actually die for Christ and endure public shame and ridicule on account of him, not unlike Alexa Minos and the graffiti making fun of him and his worship of Jesus that is still in existence to this day. Jesus does not mean, however, that his disciples will either be cursed by God or that they can atone for sins. Rather, he means that the pattern of his disciples' lives are to be patterned on his life. Sometimes that may mean a Christian will endure an actual cross, or in the case of Stephen, for example, he was stoned to death. In the Old Testament, stoning was reserved for people who offered their children to demons in child sacrifice. People who consulted with necromancers, that is, consulting with the dead or with demons. People who broke the Sabbath or people who blasphemed the name of God, which is what Stephen was accused of doing by claiming that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, of course, was accused of blasphemy, too. Now, Stephen was not ashamed of Jesus and preached Jesus and his crucifixion, and in turn, he lost his life for it. It's fascinating that Paul, at that time Saul, who stood over the death of Stephen, would long after his own unexpected conversion, he would write these words. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 2. And to the church in Rome, he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's Romans 1.16. Again, it is a bold statement to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the crucified Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus means we are not ashamed of Jesus and his word. And if the situation calls for it, not only will we proclaim the crucified Christ, we may die for him and maybe even terms of his own death, like how he died. More often than not, though, the calling to take up your cross and follow Jesus will mean that we are called to come and die to self and live to Christ every single day in the routine, mundane areas of our life. So in our work, in our relationships, in our pride, 
and our search to justify ourselves. So in other words, in a certain sense, the enemy we most often face is not outside of us. It's not the Romans. It's not some pagan youth making fun of us. It's us. It's our own hearts. In a certain sense, what Jesus teaches here is nothing new for the people of God. We read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 immediately jump to mind that we are to be a people who listen to God's word, meditate on it, and do what it says. It's precisely what Jesus calls, as we've already seen multiple times now, the good soil in the parable of the sower in Luke 8. But with the coming of the Christ, and this is what John meant when he said, he must increase and I must decrease, our lives are to take the shape and the pattern of his life. If he is the word of God come in the flesh, the true Adam, the one who has his heart perfectly set on God, then we who are flesh are to model our lives on his life and his word, looking in faith to him for everything. So to take up our cross daily is to daily turn to Christ, the word, and live unto him. And this is the central calling, the central meaning of our lives. Everything else, everything else is defined by this. But notice what he says in verses 24 and 25. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This passage bookends, or at the very least, it ties into what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Plains in Luke chapter 6. And there, Jesus taught things like, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, as in present tense. You have it now. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So Jesus' disciples will have to count the cost. Will they be willing to endure the shame and ridicule, or worse, that comes with following Jesus? Or will they be ashamed of him now and value this present moment more than the promise of life that is to come? This is, in many ways, Israel come of age. This is what maturity looks like. So, for example, when you consider Israel's early history, God says things like, if you keep my word... I will bless you right now. That's as simple as Deuteronomy gets, and I think God absolutely meant it. It's like how a parent of a young child uh, will say, if you do what I tell you to do, you will get a prize, or you will get a cookie, or something like that. If Israel would keep God's law, they would be blessed with bountiful crops and children. It would be like what Adam and Eve could have had but walked away from. And by the way, God loves to bless his people with good things. He loves to bless his people with good things. It's why in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says one of the best things a person can do is find meaning in his work, knowing that work can often be frustrating and absolutely hard and even feel meaningless, and in turn find joy in the simple pleasures of eating and drinking unto God. 
But even within the book of Deuteronomy, it's clear that God wanted his people to grow into the ability to make right uh, judgments and have wisdom in light of him. So clearly, if you know anything about the history of Israel, clearly uh, Israel repeatedly disobeyed and chased after immediate gratification, typically through idolatry. But even so, there is growth towards maturity as evidenced by Solomon in the wisdom literature and the prophets. I mean, think about it this way. If you look at what Jesus addresses in the gospel, he never addresses pagan idolatry. Compare that against the book of Judges. So the people of Jesus' day, they're not struggling with going to a temple of Baal, for example. They've moved past that, even as they still deal with idolatry. Before this, if you think through, oh, I'm, excuse me, by the time we get to Daniel and Israel's exile from the land, so we've been moving, say, through the book of Judges, through the monarchy, we get to, to Daniel, which we're studying starting tonight, Israel's exile from the land, and again, they're exiled for idolatry and unfaithfulness. For the first time, we see God's people persecuted for worshiping the true God. It's a change. It's a growth. Before this, Israel rebelled against God, and after a time, God would hand his people over to their sinful desires, you know, to what they, they said they wanted most, and they kept pursuing, like, great, you're going to get it, which in turn meant he would remove his hand of protection, and Israel would get hammered and oppressed by whatever nation and their gods that they had chased after. It's a move to maturity when God's people suffer for doing what is right instead of suffering for doing what is wrong. Peter says as much in his first letter. The move to maturity is expressed in terms of the willingness to delay gratification and wait upon God to provide, trusting that he will. That's built into Genesis 2. That's how long he's been teaching this. That's exactly what Jesus demonstrates in both his temptation in the wilderness and his crucifixion. In both those moments, the beginning of his ministry and really the end of his ministry, he waits upon the Lord to provide. So Daniel, for example, as a mature Israelite, could endure exile and things like the lion's den because he was confident God would eventually make good on his promises. Even so... It was very difficult for Daniel, for example, when God revealed to him that Israel would not merely be in exile for 70 years, which was the entirety of his adult life. So in other words, you will die in Babylon. No, even when Israel would be restored back to the land, Israel would be under the rule of foreign nations for another 490 years before the kingdom of God would arrive. That's the 70 weeks of years in Daniel 9. And Daniel was crestfallen because of it. That's why the Israel of Jesus' day knew to expect that the kingdom would show up soon. They, they could do the math. So historically, when we get to Jesus and the fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom, Jesus tells his disciple that even as the kingdom was arriving right then and there, it was not arriving in its fullness. And like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they may endure real pain and suffering on account of belonging to Jesus and the arrival of his kingdom. And that's the irony. 
Because the kingdom has come, because the Spirit has been given, because God's people have grown closer in maturity, life would at times be much harder. Even so, as Jesus promises in verse 27, some of them would be alive to see the kingdom show up. And as we know, 11 out of the 12 disciples did see it come. That's what's on view with Jesus' ascension into heaven and the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts 1 and 2. But still, like Daniel, the disciples wanted the, the kingdom to come in its fullness now. It's why in Acts 1, right before Jesus' ascension, they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They want it in full. And in response, Jesus tells them, it's not for you to know when that will be, but you will soon receive the Holy Spirit, a sure sign that the promised kingdom had truly shown up, at least in part. This is why Hebrews 11 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Christians have sometimes made the mistake of thinking the author of Hebrews is talking about faith in God in general, and even that is kind of a blind faith, as in we hope in a God we have not seen. And I've, there is, of course, something to that. But then Hebrews 11 goes on to give example after example of faithful people who were promised God's redemption and the coming of the kingdom, and they did not see it in full. So even as they saw partial down payments of that promise, like how we have already received the Holy Spirit, even as we await now the resurrection of the dead, they did not see the kingdom come in full. And like Daniel, they died. They died waiting for it. It is a mark of maturity, not foolishness, as the world sees it. It is a mark of maturity and wisdom to trust that even though we die, our God has given us such a great cloud of witnesses of events and of the down payment of the Spirit that we take Him at His word and we wait for Him to make good on it. Well, Jesus puts the question to the crowds, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses or forfeits his soul or himself? Now think of it this way. Had John the Baptist backed off of his preaching of Jesus and his calling to be a prophet, which included speaking truth to Israel's kings, which at that point would have been Herod, he most likely would not have died at the hands of that perverted false king in his late 20s. Chances are he could have lived well into his 80s, as people often did at that time period. And while he might have gained himself an extra 50 years, in the end, he would have forfeited his life. It's very easy to fool yourself into thinking you have gained the world, as if 50 years is a long time. It is not. If you think back to Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower in chapter 8, people tend to deny Jesus for three reasons. One, they hear the word of God but Satan steals the word from them right at the point where they most easily reject the word. Or second, they, people receive the word with joy, but in a time of testing, they fall away. Or third, people hear the word, but the word is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and the fruit never matures. And of course, maturity is the very thing 
taking up a cross daily assumes. Now, I've primarily seen the first example among intellectuals and academics who are amenable to Christianity, uh, particularly in light of how right now Western culture is re-paganizing itself, as Louise Perry recently put it in her brilliant article, but they can't go all the way. They can't go all the way with Christ. They're hung up on some issue, and so they will not commit to Christ even as they largely agree with his ethics. I've seen the second example most often happen with youth groups or, or retreats or conferences when people get revved up for God. It's a big mountaintop experience. It's awesome. But then they go home and the normal mundane life returns or worse within that, that period, something hard hits them. Wait, I, I thought God was good. How, how is this happening? And they fall away. It's the third example that Jesus gives that I think is so dangerous and so chilling for us. It's when the cares of life, perhaps our jobs or our children or our wealth or the enjoyment of pleasure, tempts us away. We are easily distracted into thinking this is where life is found and fall away from centering our lives on Christ despite the fact that he gave us these things. It's like Jesus' word to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, I know your works. You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Laodicea apparently enjoyed access to both very cold water and hot springs and both obviously have their benefits in their time. God would rather them be like either one of those. But the city itself had to have water piped in, which caused it to be tepid. And in the blazing heat, tepid is terrible. In the dead of winter, tepid is terrible. That's Jesus' point. He wants his people to either be a hot spring or refreshing cold water, but instead they're tepid and it makes them sick. It makes him sick. To put it in terms of our passage, Jesus is ashamed of the Laodiceans because they are ashamed of him. And as he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Laodiceans were clearly, in some form, materially rich, but they had nothing on us. Nothing on us. We live in times where it is accepted wisdom. This is accepted wisdom to avoid anything uncomfortable. 
anything that takes away from the cultivation of the self, anything that requires the sacrifice of our time or pleasure. And we believe we do not deserve to endure the indignities of having to be patient, let alone having to engage with people we find distasteful or we disagree with, or they're those kinds of people. And while they probably did not realize it, the Laodiceans, as Jesus warns in the parable of the sower, had been lured away by the cares of this life. They were neither hot or cold. They produced no fruit, which means they were good for nothing, and in turn, turn had grown ashamed of Jesus. And again, God loves to give good gifts to his people. He loves to. You'll never see him say, listen, I'm going to make things so terribly difficult for you to see if you really love me. No, he loves to give good gifts to his people. And I'm, I'm so grateful to live not only in America, but to live in Greenville with my family. Even as the temptation is to believe these gifts are the real substance of our lives, or worse, that we provided them for ourselves. As the parable of the sower illustrates, it is very possible, think on this, it is very possible to claim Christ and be ashamed of him at the very same time. It is very possible to be outwardly rich and prosperous and not see that we are actually poor and wretched and blind and naked. It's when God's laws and patterns start to feel restrictive. We don't think his yoke is good anymore. And his burden seems heavy, not light. It's when we start thinking our time is our own, and so things like the basic pattern of six days and Sabbath is optional or voluntary, or it should fit with the priorities I have set for my own life. If we resist patterning our lives on Jesus' life, which means whether we realize it or not, we are growing ashamed of being his disciple, when the basic things feel restrictive, it should be an alarm. It should be an alarm, a call to self-examination, not to whether or not we're actually maturing. Maturity is not the absence of sin. Maturity is not perfectionism. No, whether in our current disposition towards the cares of this world, if we will ever mature to good fruit. Immature fruit will not be willing to delay gratification. And in turn, we will not take up a cross and follow Jesus. It will not because in the end, it is ashamed of Jesus. Now, Jesus knows he's not laying out something that is easy. He doesn't just throw out cross language like he's throwing out beach balls or something. No, he knows that this is hard. He knows it's, it's easy to be ashamed of following a man who claimed to be the Christ and the Son of God who was crucified. It's why Stephen's speech is so remarkable. It's why he tells the Laodiceans that he stands at the door and knocks. Though they are so easily ashamed of him, still he pursues them and wants them to grow to maturity. He wants to eat with them. So Jesus does not lay out these commandments and then say, good luck. I hope you endure to the end. Now, in the very next passage in Luke, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and they get to see him and his coming glory at his transfiguration. That is, they get a sneak peek of how the story ends. 
when you know how the story ends, and we do in ways better than they did, you can live in light of it. Again, as we're getting ready to come to the Lord's Supper, let me highlight this. Maturity is not the absence of sin. If it were, none of us could come and eat. Maturity is in the growth of repentance, of a daily coming to take up your cross. Some days are better than others. Some victories are more so than others, but still, you are taking up your cross. You can live in light of the end. Well, let me pray for us. Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you that you never cease pursuing your people. Thank you for the love that we have in Jesus. May your spirit work his word deep within us for our good and your glory. We pray this in his name through the power of that same spirit. Amen.